Good morning. You're having a conversation. And in this conversation, you start talking about God. Okay? Now, wiping away all the things that might divide, things that might cause an argument, wiping away all the doctrinal issues, how do you worship, how do you become a Christian, one word has to come up when you're talking about God. And that word is love. Because the Bible tells us that God is love. And as we're having this conversation with somebody and you're talking about God and and love comes up, there's different views about love, right? There's these worldly views that people have conceived in their mind, then there's the biblical point of view about love. The world might see the love as um, love is somebody who can help me, can do something for me. The biblical view is it's all-encompassing. There's no partiality with God. God loves all. The worldly view may not be like that. The worldly view may be like, what can I get? How many's had an anniversary or a birthday and you are, don't throw any tomatoes, but you're expecting something because you love me? Versus what can I give? Biblical view of love. The worldly view of love is stating, is, is fickle. Again, I know this has been in this congregation. Um, People are married and say, well, I just don't love you anymore. It's just not there. I don't feel it anymore. Versus the biblical view, it's unmovable. You love. We love. It's not just emotional. It's very objective. It's very real. So I ask this question looking at these two viewpoints. And we think about God and God is love. Does God allow us to have a different view of love than He does? I think the answer is no, but. Can we honestly say that we can love as God loves? I want to try to look at something. I want you to go to 1 John chapter 4 with me if you would. 1 John chapter 4. Where the text states, God is love. Let's read that. Begin with verse 7 of 1 John chapter 4, which reads, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For, here's our verse, God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That could be our sermon this morning. That could be our lesson. But God is love. Can you fathom that? Can you really understand? What does that mean, God is love? Did somebody teach it to Him? Is it a learned trait? 
No, he, he, he is love. God is love. He can't be anything else but love. That's who he is. But now what about us? And I may make the argument that that's just not natural for us to love as God loves. Look at these few passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And this is a passage that Paul is writing about to the church of God at Corinth, talking about spiritual gifts, actually, but he stops for a second. And in chapter 13, we read about some characteristics of love. And as we read these, we're supposed to be reading verse 4. Begin with verse 4. It states, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When you read that list, and we read that list, some of those things, I'll just tell them myself, it's not necessarily natural for me. Lord, help me. I envy sometimes. I'm not, I'm not always the most patient person in the world. So to say that, yeah, God is love, and God expects us to try to love as he does, it's almost impossible because that's just who God is. God is love. Now, with that said, you're having this conversation. And you're talking to someone. Why do you tell them? The word comes up, you know, love comes up. It has to come up. Why do you tell those people you're talking with? Well, obviously, I would hope obviously, you're going to talk about Jesus. Jesus is the epitome. He's the fruition of God's love. What God is love, well, the best way for us to try to fathom that is to look at who? Look at Jesus. He's the culmination of God's love. But is that it? If all you if, if you're talking to somebody and all you do is quote John 3:16, have you told somebody about God's love? Absolutely. Or 1 John 3 or, or Romans chapter 5 or Romans chapter 8. We'll look at those later on. If you just talk about those, have you talked about and showed people here's God's love for us? Absolutely. But there's more to it than that. Is there any indication that we can see the love that God has for us before Jesus was ever manifested on this earth? In other words, can we see a clear line? Can we go all the way back to Genesis and look toward the cross and look toward Jesus and the resurrection? And can we see God's love there? My answer is yes. And that's what I want to try to show you this morning. We're going to look back at the creation. And can we ask, can we see the love of God at creation? Then we're going to look back at the flood. And can we see the love of God at the flood? Then we're going to look at the Israelites and the history of the Israelites as best we can, briefly, obviously. But can we see the love of God for us within the history of the Israelites. We already know we can see it manifested in Jesus. Can we see the love of God at creation? Well, I would argue 
that God created us to love us. He made us for something to cherish and to love and for that love to be given back, obviously. After each day of the creative process that God had, six days of creation, after each day, day one, day two, three, four, five, and six, there's one word God would say. And God looked and it was good. It was good, good, good. But when was it that God used the phrase, very specifically, it was very good? After what day? Day six. What happened on day six? Humans were created. God created everything for humans because of love, if you really think about it. Everything we need to sustain life on this earth, God's given it. It's here. It's right here for us. There's even more than that. The visual things, the aesthetic things, if you will, the intangible things, if you want to call it that. I look around the earth and I think it's beautiful. There's some wastelands, I understand it, but, but most of the world, the earth, some very beautiful places, places I want to go see, hopefully someday. But there's also things that God created that's just, you look at it, you're just in awe. You look up into space at night. Even during the day sometimes. I think God did that because he loves. God loves us. But he goes deeper than that. As we look at back, back at creation, I ask you this question. What do you love the most? You might say, well, my wife, my husband, my family, my kids, my car, my house, I don't know. That's not what I'm asking. What do you love the most. We love the most the things that are valuable to us, right? What's valuable to me, what has worth to me, that's what I cherish. That's what I love. We are created in the image of God. Genesis record tells us. We have this intimate relationship with God. We're created in his image. He loved us, and he did that. But even deeper than that, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, it states that God took dirt, formed and fashioned a human being, a male body, however he did it, he did it. Was that male body ready to go out to the earth and live? Was that male form of a body ready to have a relationship with God? I would argue no, because the rest of the verse states this. And God from the dust of the ground formed man and what? Breathed into him the breath of life. Then later on, in verses 20 and 23, Adam's looking around, he's naming the animals, he realizes, where's, where's, where's something that's meat, M-E-T, for me? And God put Adam in a deep sleep, took the rib, fashioned a woman. We are linked to heaven like no other creature God made because we have a soul. We have an eternal soul that's going to live someplace forever. And to me, and hopefully to you, as we go back to the creation, 
We see the love that God has for us. So when you're talking with somebody, absolutely quote those New Testament things and passages about Jesus, but go back even further and lay it out. This goes all the way back to the creation. We can see God's love for us. What about at the flood? Can we see the love of God that he has for us at the flood? It doesn't start out too good, does it? As we go to Genesis chapter 6, what is God ready to do? Wipe the slate clean. Seemingly ready to wipe everybody out. And was he going to start over? I'm not sure what was going to happen. Now, we don't have to worry about that, right? Because we have verse 8 that tells us, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And eight people were saved, and from those eight, the earth was repopulated. So we can somewhat see the love that God has for us there because he did not wipe everybody out. But what else about the flood shows us God's love? As we think about the flood scenario and we think about how um, what happened in those years, I see the patience of God. And I can see the long suffering of God and from that long suffering... I see how much he actually loved us. He didn't wipe everybody out. We don't know how long it took to build the ark. I've always answered 120 years, and the more I researched, I thought, I'm not so sure about that. But somewhere maybe between 80 to 120 years, that's how long it probably took. Either way, that's a long time. That's a lot of patience on God's part because as chapter 6 begins, he's done. He's ready to wipe everybody out and start all over. But he didn't do that. And as Noah's constructing this ark, he's also, as 2 Peter tells us, chapter 2, he's a preaching. He was a preacher of righteousness. God was long-suffering in those days. But there's a modern application for us, too. If you would go to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Just one verse. You probably know it well. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. And here's what Peter wrote. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is, here's our word, long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to Repentance. We don't know when the judgment day is coming. Jesus didn't even know that. We don't know when everything is going to end. We don't know what keeps God from finishing everything right now, from culminating history right now. We don't know. But maybe this verse, Second Peter 3 and verse 9, maybe gives us a hint of why he's waiting. This tells us that God is patient. God is long-suffering. But so, so much so that maybe, just maybe, he hasn't consummated the history of the world yet because he's maybe waiting for somebody in this room right now. Think about your soul as we go on. Think about where you are before God. Are you ready to stand before God right now? 
He's been long-suffering with us. None of us can say, I need more time. You haven't given me enough time, God. Can't say that. Can't say that. Because you're hearing the gospel right now. A lot of you have already heard it a lot. And you know what to do. Now, I want to take a time out and pause, if I may, for a second. As I was doing this lesson and putting this lesson together, and... uh, it dawned on me as I'm trying to look at the scenario, I'm talking to somebody. And I'm talking, okay, we can go all the way back to creation to see the love God has for us. We can even see the flood as devastating and global as it was. We can still see the love of God. But somebody might say, okay, all right. All right, Steve. Well, if, if God is love, as you say, why did he build a paradise and then kick people out of it? Or, okay, all right, you're telling me, but why did, why did God, why did he create everybody and then all of a sudden he just wants to wipe the slate clean during Noah's day? Doesn't sound like love to me. How would you answer that? Or maybe, maybe make it more modern application for us. If God is love, if you're telling me if God is love, why didn't he just create a world where there is no pain? where there is no suffering, where there is no death. Because I'm seeing it all around me. I preached funerals of just the last few years of my granny, of my uncle, of a dear friend. I've seen disease, even in this room, in my family, ravage people, take them out. Some's delivering it right now. I've seen people depressed and get down. I've had students come to me to the middle school and say, man, my life stinks. Some adults have done something to them where I like to take a gun and blow that adult's head off. I'll just tell you right now. Or some kid comes to me and, man, things are so bad at, at school. And just, Mr. Hill, I said, just, and they roll their sleeves up and you see the cuts. I go to visit my granny at an NHC. I lived beside her for over 20 years. Shared the same driveway, and she doesn't know my face. She doesn't know me. So I'm looking around. I'm seeing suffering and pain and death everywhere, and you're telling me God is love? Why didn't God, if God is such a loving God, why didn't he just create a world where there's none of that stuff going on? How do you answer? You can answer it in two words. He did create a world without pain and suffering and death. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. It was complete. It was perfect. Creation was up and running and just beautifully in harmony with the Father, with God. He did create it. But again, someone might say, okay, all right, I see what you're saying, but I'm still seeing all this stuff around me. If God is not the author, where did it come from? Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and verse 17 tells us that when God was creating the garden, the paradise, Eden, God said, the Bible tells us, here's everything you need, man. 
Here's everything you need to sustain your life, everything that's beautiful, everything to eat, everything you need. Just stay away from those trees in the midst of the garden. So you might think, well, wait, wait a minute. Why did he do that? Don't put those trees in. No, don't tell me that. <laughs> don't put those trees in the midst of the garden. Why'd you do that? Just give me the good stuff. Can there be love without the opportunity to make a choice? Yes or no? Can love exist unless it's a free will choice? God did not bring pain, suffering, and death into existence. He didn't do it. Adam and Eve, the people of Noah's day, humankind abused their free will which resulted in what we're having to deal with today, which includes sin. God gave us and every human being the right to choose. Because if we don't have the right to choose, we're robots. We're a baby doll that can pull the string and say, I love you. It's not real. That's not real love. God doesn't want to make us love him. He wants us to look at who he is Realize what he's done for us and say, God, I do love you. Thank you for everything you've done for me. Now, with that said, thank you for the pause. Pause off. Time back in. Back to our story. Now, we're going back and looking at, and you're talking to somebody, talking about the love that God has for us. We see it at creation. We see it during the flood. What about with the history of the Israelites? Can we see the love of God there? When you think about God and what he could have done, the what-ifs, he could have taken any nation or any people on this planet, work with them. They could have been the chosen nation, the chosen people. But he didn't do that. He chose a man to name of Abraham. And from Abraham and his descendants, he made a nation of them. I want to read Deuteronomy 7. I hope that's coming out all right. Read along with me as we read Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's see the love here. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's God's love. God's love is action. God's love is doing. God's love is protecting. God's love is giving. And he didn't choose these people, Abraham's descendants, because there's some great nation already, but to work through them. An oath, a promise, had been given to the Abrahams and the Isaacs and the Jacobs, and God is keeping that promise. But you think about this relationship that God had with his chosen people, the Israelites, um, it wasn't good all the time. It wasn't very kosher. <laughs> it's a Jewish. Anyway, um, you'll get that later when you're driving down the road. But rocky at best. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 45 with me. I want to look at something very important. Genesis chapter 45. Um, Genesis chapter 45 is the finally... Joseph, the Joseph with the coat of many colors, Joseph, finally revealing who he is to his brothers. 
It's a heart-wrenching read. But let's read this before we go on. In Genesis chapter 45, beginning with verse 1, we read, Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Listen very carefully. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land. There are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. Why? Joseph went through all this, rose to prominence, yes. I mean, you think about this history. God did make promises. He promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob through your seed, through your descendants and through your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. But you think about as we go on with this story, Moses made excuses when it was time to leave bondage. Uh, all the issues in the wilderness, they get into the promised land in this period of this roller coaster ride with the judges. Then all of a sudden they turn their back on God. Well, give us a king like everybody else has a king. Then the country basically has a civil war and splits in two. They begin to intermarry, worshiping idols and false gods. They take it into bondage to Assyria and Babylon. They, are, they return. But God never, ever allowed his chosen people to be eliminated from history. God continued to recognize the Israelites, the Jews, as his chosen people. Why? All this history, all these ups and downs, all these things just thumbing their nose almost at God, spitting right in his face, if you will. Why did he stay with them? Why do we have these genealogies, not only in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, but specifically in the New Testament? Matthew and Luke list a long, boring, if you will, not always the most pleasant thing to read, is what I mean. This family tree, Why is it there? There's a reason for every word to be in the Bible. Why are those in the Bible? If you would go to Acts chapter 13 with me, please. Acts chapter 13. Excuse me. We're going to be reading verse 16. This is Paul standing up giving his defense for what he's doing. Notice very carefully some of the things he says. In Acts chapter 13, beginning with verse 16, we read, Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of the, this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. 
Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob, the people in bondage in Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put us put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And after that, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the, king, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. When he had removed him, he raised up them, David, as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise... God raised up for Israel, and here's our answer. Here's our answer for the why. God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. The epitome of God's love, the culmination of God's love was a Savior was coming, and that Savior was coming from the Israelites. And Jesus is the manifestation of God's love for us. God's love to me is seen throughout the entire Bible, from Genesis all the way up to Jesus. I hope you see that too. And we look at these verses. John 3.16, you know, For God so loved, He went into action. That's God's love. God so loved, He gave something, His only begotten Son. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 states, Behold what manner of love the Father has for us, that we can be called His child. What a relationship we can have. I want to read and finish with Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 8. If you want to turn there with me, and I really appreciate your patience as we read these verses, because God's Word is not burdensome. In Romans chapter 5, then we'll go to the passage that Jared read. Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrates, again doing something, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God sent a Savior. And he died for us. Now let's end with Romans chapter 8 one more time. Romans chapter 8 and verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That's the Christian's lot sometimes, by the way. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul writes, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities nor powers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor created any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. God is love. He just is. And that's who he is. And he has shown us his love. He's demonstrated his, his love. Throughout history, he's shown us his love, culminating in Jesus of Nazareth. His pure manifest, manifestation of love on this earth. Beginning at creation to the flood, the history of the Israelites, culminating with Jesus, the evidence is clear. God is love and God loves us. And that love story continues to this very day. We talked about in this lesson that uh, at creation, there was no pain. There was no suffering. There was no death. It didn't exist, but something happened. And now pain, suffering, death, sin exist. There's one more thing about God's love. There's another place that's being prepared that has enough rooms for everybody in this room. It has enough rooms, this place being prepared, for everybody on the planet if need be. For anyone who wants that room, there's a place being prepared. This place has no pain, no suffering, no death, and sin won't be there. The epitome of God's love will be there. Matter of fact, he's already there. And we call this place heaven. So as you're standing there, and I asked you earlier, are you ready to meet God? Are you ready for the judgment day? Are you ready to give your soul to him and say, God, okay, I'm ready. Judge it. Send it to wherever you think it needs to go eternally. Are you ready? There's a place prepared where there's going to be torment. And as I just stated, there's also a place that's prepared where we don't have to worry about all the frailties of this life, all the suffering, the pain, the death, the sin, the depression, whatever it may be, all those things are gone when we get there. There's a room waiting if we will surrender to God right now as we stand to see.